It's a, a pleasure to be here with you this morning. My thanks to the Reynolds for this uh, wonderful occasion. Uh, I can say quite simply, I've had a blast, uh, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much uh, as I have. Uh, of course, what I'm asking myself right now is what in the world can I possibly add uh, to the remarkable uh, presentations we've heard over the last few days. But let me aim some comments at the uh, young delegates in particular who are here uh, and try to tell you a few stories about my own career and perhaps some lessons learned that might be of, of some value to you. And I really want to emphasize four points. The first, uh, the value, uh, the joy, and the importance of viewing your life's work as a calling. The second, the importance of failure, uh, of embracing failure uh, along the way. The importance of boldness and imagination in your work. And finally, the importance of finding mentors to guide you along the way. Now, as far as the idea of a calling, I think most people have an intuitive sense of a, what a calling is, just some, some very deep felt sense that you are called or meant to do a certain work. We tend to associate this with uh, the clergy in particular, but that really is a very limited uh, kind of idea. I think you can be called to almost any activity uh, with some uh, social value to it. I've been doubly blessed in my life uh, to have sensed a calling to two rather distinct careers. Uh, the first was to clinical medicine, uh, beginning at about age eight in the third grade, inspired by my family physician. Uh, I took the notion that I wanted to be a practicing doctor. Uh, and that uh, notion animated me uh, for the next uh, 20 some odd years, uh, right through college and medical school. I never wavered from that. I never had any uh, notion that I wanted to do anything but practice medicine. And so I did. Uh, I graduated medical school and became board certified in internal medicine and cardiovascular disease. And in the early years of my career, was an academic physician. And I can honestly say that, uh, and I really mean this, that there's no greater privilege uh, than to care for sick people and to have fellow human beings uh, put their health and, in some cases, their lives in your hands. Uh, and I will be forever grateful uh, for that opportunity. But somewhere along the way, uh, after my residency uh, and in fulfillment of my draft obligation, uh, there was a draft in those days, uh, I found myself with a commission in the United States Public Health Service in the late 60s and went to the NIH where I was introduced to doing research. It did not go well. Uh, for the first 18 months of a two-year assignment, I did nothing but fail, fail, fail. And this was a new experience for me. I had always been top of my class. Things had come easy to me. Uh, and I had never really failed in any prolonged way at anything I had ever undertaken. So this was a very raw experience. Uh, but toward the end of that experience, perhaps the last six months, I began to meet with some success and published my first couple of papers, but I already made arrangements to move on uh, and I, to complete my clinical training at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And there I had a very important experience because for the first six months there, back on intensive clinical duty, I realized that I really missed the laboratory. Uh, and so I took the notion to uh, begin doing research again, and that continued. I went to Duke in 1973, opened a laboratory, 
uh, and began what would be my life's work. At the beginning at Duke, I would say I spent about half my time doing clinical practice and half doing research. But increasingly, I felt myself drawn uh, to the laboratory activities. It was never a conscious decision on my part to do more and more research and less and less clinical work. I was just called in that direction. And so eventually, uh, I was spending almost all my time doing research. I found my, my thoughts at idle times uh, drifting towards my experiments much more often than to the difficult patients that I had. And so I became increasingly uh, almost a full-time scientist. So really, I had experienced uh, this idea of a calling uh, on a couple of occasions. And I would point out to the young people uh, that if you can experience your life's work as a calling, uh, it won't guarantee you success, but you'll certainly be uh, a lot more fulfilled. Uh, one of my favorite quotations is one that is uh, attributed to uh, John F. Kennedy, who was said to be paraphrasing Aristotle. And it goes something along these lines, that true happiness is the full use of your powers along lines of excellence. The full use of your powers along lines of excellence. So, but there are two key elements there. Uh, one is that you know what your powers are. And of course, that's something that many of you are currently uh, still discovering. And then the other is that having discovered your powers, you direct them along some lines that are important. Now, before I talk about failure, just a word or two about my research. Uh, you've heard uh, that very nice introduction. I'm not going to dwell on the science. You can read about that if you like. But uh, I started doing research some 40, 45 years ago at a time when it was not known how drugs and hormones worked. And it seemed intuitively obvious to me uh, that there must be some type of a molecule on cells uh, to which drugs would bind, much like a key would fit into a lock. Uh, I mean, how did adrenaline know to go to your heart and blood vessels and not to your nose or your eyeball? Uh, so there had to be some sort of receptive mechanism. And I spent my career initially trying to prove such molecules existed and then purifying them, isolating them, finding what they were. And as you've heard, we, we discovered a huge family of receptors. And they account, they are the targets for about half of all drugs used today, from antihistamines to beta blockers to, you may have heard of angiotensin receptor blockers, opiates, the list goes on and on. And although it was never my intention, uh, the ramifications of the work would ultimately change the way drugs are developed and lead to the development of really hundreds of different drugs. Uh, and of course, that's been very gratifying. But along the way, as you can imagine, I met with repeated failures. Uh, I, in fact, am an expert on failure. Uh, and I give a talk every year to the research fellows at Duke University uh, called How to Deal with Failure and Rejection. I actually enjoy giving that talk. Uh, and. Uh, I point out to them that I'm very good at failing. Uh, I once had a mentor uh, who told me, asked me if I knew the difference between uh, a very, very successful superstar scientist and one who was just, you know, average. I said I didn't. He said, well, you know, for an average scientist, maybe 1% of what they do actually works. But for the superstar, it could be as high as 2%. 
Uh, and that's really stuck with me. So even for the most successful scientists, 98, 99% of everything you do is going to fail. So experiencing your life's work is a calling. Failing, and failing is, is not something anybody wants to do, but you have to embrace it because, as we heard from other speakers yesterday, every time you fail, you learn a way not to do something. You, you learn something that doesn't work, and that narrows the possibilities for something that might. And so one has to learn uh, to live with that failure, and as they say, in a sense, to embrace it with the confidence that ultimately you will get to where you want to go. My third point has to do with imagination and boldness. Again, a couple of quotes that have inspired me over the years. One of my favorites is attributed to Albert Einstein, who said that imagination is more important than knowledge. I love that quote. Imagination is more important than knowledge. I often point out to my fellows that uh, much of the key to my success, I've always believed, is just how little I know. Uh, because sometimes knowing too much limits your imagination of what might be. And in a sense, we all know as scientists that all knowledge is provisional. It's not that it's wrong, it's just that it's always incomplete, and there's always more to know. Another quote uh, that I like, which has been attributed to Goethe, but it turns out he didn't write it at all, and nobody seems to know who did, but I don't think it much matters. It goes something like this. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And it's true. Being bold uh, in itself uh, it, it, it has magic, true magic. Uh, on my way out here uh, last week, I stopped off at a major university in Oregon, and I was a visiting professor for a day, and I, I was having dinner one evening with several scientists. And I heard a story that I've heard on a number of occasions. In this case, it was from a scientist who's you know, uh, fairly well known in, in my area. He's certainly not a superstar, but he's a journeyman, and we all know his work. Uh, and he was telling me that a couple of years before, he had made some interesting observations, which flew in the face of the existing paradigms in our area. And he really had wanted to publish it, but he was afraid. He was frightened to do it uh, because it was so much against what was believed. And so he hesitated for about a year. Uh, trying to convince himself that he was right. In the meanwhile, two other laboratories published the findings. Uh, they beat him to the punch. And in fact, it was a major discovery. But he just didn't have the boldness. He was too held back by intellectual timidity to go outside the bounds of what was thought to be uh, known at the time. Now, to do that requires intellectual courage, and it requires the, a certain fearlessness Sometimes, uh, what's, what's the risk? Well, the risk is you're going to be wrong. But, you know, it's not a crime to be wrong. Everybody is wrong sometimes. Uh, but this guy was so paralyzed uh, by the fear of being wrong that he was unable to publish uh, the very novel findings. So you need to be bold. You need to believe in your findings. You need to uh, believe in your own vision. And after you've tested it, well, then it's time to act. Uh, and just just the act of acting, as I said, has magic in it, the initiation of activity. My final point has to do with mentoring and the importance of mentoring. I've been a teacher all my life, uh, all my professional life, but I don't give a lot of lectures. The main way that I teach uh, is by mentoring students and fellows in my laboratory. And I have uh, trained about 250 scientists in my laboratory, students, graduate students, postdocs. 
I'm very proud of all that they uh, have accomplished. Uh, and you know, in science, and I'm sure in many other uh, walks of life, there are amazing lineages. And I take great pride, probably the greatest pride in my career, is in the many scientists that I've trained who are leading figures in my area of research. And you see this all the time. And I think what these lineages imply is that there are transferable elements uh, in learning how to do something. I always tell my people somewhat, but only somewhat facetiously, that if it's important, you can't look it up in a book or even an article. You have to watch somebody doing it. You have to learn by doing and apprenticing yourself to somebody who's good at doing that. And the kinds of things that you can learn are subtle things and not so subtle things. For example, in science, nothing more defines a scientist than what they work on. What's their problem? Well, how do you know what a good problem is? I mean, there are some problems that are very straightforward, easy to solve, and if you choose those, you'll publish a lot of papers. So in that sense, you'll be successful. But nobody will care because the findings are trivial. On the other hand, you might choose something very, very important and very risky. But it's so risky that it's really not doable right now. And then you'll fail because you won't be able to do it. And so the magic is to find a place as far toward important and risky research as you can personally go without falling off that cliff that you can't do it. Well, how do you know where that is? Well, you can't, of course. But if you watch a skilled mentor making those decisions, what to work on, what not to work on, when to pull the plug on a project that doesn't seem to be working, when to just persist with it, and you watch that over a period of years, then you learn to develop uh, the attitudes uh, and the sensibility uh, and the values uh, that might lead to success. And I think that's the reason that you see these lineages in science and other walks of life uh, that come uh, from people working with talented mentors. Now, before I conclude, and on the subject of mentoring, I want to give a piece of advice uh, to the young uh, trainees, uh, trainees, the young delegates uh, in the audience. Uh, and I suspect, you know, we're coming up on that time of year where the Nobel laureates are going to be named, and we, we've seen many Nobel laureates here. Uh, as my wife said, they're thick on the ground. Uh, there are Nobel laureates uh, uh, throughout this meeting, myself included. Uh, and we'll be hearing who the new laureates are in just a month or so. And one of the things that Nobel laureates seem to like to do is advise other people on how they might win a Nobel Prize. In fact, a local celebrity here, uh, Michael Bishop, uh, who uh, was a professor for many years at UCSF, who shared the Nobel Prize uh, with Harold Varmus in 1989 for discovering oncogenes, uh, which are, of course, the genes, the mutated genes that cause cancers. He wrote a book called How to Win the Nobel Prize. And it's very entertaining. I recommend it. He has some cute stories. But I have a completely different take on it. So there was an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine just several years ago, which, frankly, I did not read, in all honesty, until after I had won the prize. And it was called Chocolate Consumption, Cognitive Function, and Nobel Laureates. And what this article purports to show, and you can look this up, I think it was early 2012, is that if you make a plot of the per capita chocolate consumption in a country versus the number of Nobel Prizes, 
there's a direct linear relationship with an extraordinarily uh, high uh, statistical significance, 0 0.001. Interestingly, in other words, the more chocolate that's eaten in a country, the more Nobel laureates they have. And, and Ehud, by the way, Israel does quite well, uh, <laughs> according to this metric. Uh, but interestingly, there's only one outlier, uh, and it's kind of interesting, it's Sweden. Uh, which has uh, more prizes than they eat chocolate, uh, which makes you wonder about whether there's some inherent bias there. Well, here's my, here's my true testimony to which my uh, wife will attest. This is, I'm not making this up. I love chocolate. Uh, and I have eaten dark chocolate, 70%, by the way, uh, but only a very small amount for many years. Uh, one small square, about 10 grams, a couple of times a week. Now, here's the God's honest truth. In the summer, of uh, 2012, I think it was in August, I said to Lynn, you know, I'm almost 70 years old. I've been eating chocolate only twice a week because I don't want to gain weight, I don't want my cholesterol to go up, but what the heck? I'm going to move to daily. I'm going up, I'm going to have a square of chocolate every night. And so in August of 2012, I started eating one square of chocolate, dark chocolate with almonds, every night. Two months later, I got the call from Stockholm. Now, <laughs> from this, I, as a scientist, derived two conclusions. One, there's a clear threshold effect. You've got to get above a certain level. But even more important for the delegates, it's clearly very rapidly acting, because within two months, I had won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> so so I, I invite you to, to take, that, uh, take that advice to heart. So let me finish by uh, reading to you something that I wrote, which will perhaps be meaningful to you. At the Nobel banquet, which occurs on December 10th uh, every year, uh, one winner from each prize category makes a very brief banquet speech. Uh, it has to be five minutes or less. And I shared the prize uh, very gratifyingly with Brian Kobilka, a professor here at Stanford, who had been in my lab for five years in the 1980s as a trainee. I'd like to read you the last one or two lines of what I had to say. I said the following. Brian and I both began our careers as physicians and have ultimately traveled a long road to ever more fundamental research, one which has now led us to the Nobel Prize in chemistry. To me, it seems very much the fulfillment of an aspiration so beautifully expressed in a line from a poem entitled Ithaca by the Greek poet Constantine Kafavi, which I have had taped above my desk for many, many years. It reads, quote, when you set out on your journey to Ithaca, pray that the road is long, full of adventure, full of knowledge, close quote. And I can tell you this, for me, it certainly has been so far. And I, what I wish for all the young delegates in the room is that your road is long, full of adventure, and full of knowledge. I'm sure it will be. Thank you.